First Samuel, last week, David is anointed by Samuel. Samuel shows up in Bethlehem, David's hometown, and he anoints him. Remember, David's in the field. He's the youngest of Jesse's sons. They call David in. Samuel dumps oil on his head. And David is set apart as the king. He's like 15 years old at this time. It'll be 15 years before he's actually sitting on the throne. But that exchange, it seems to be a private ceremony, maybe just David and his family, is the beginning of David's leadership. There's a, there's a bit of an on-ramp for him before he actually becomes king. But this is, that's day one for him. We saw that last week. And the, the, the way David is introduced in that, we're going to see this week, next week, David is introduced in multiple ways. We see different facets of who he is. Last week, we saw him as God's chosen one. Remember, David doesn't say anything. He literally is picked out of a field. The prophet shows up in his hometown and picks him out of a field and says, you're the one. You're the one that God has set apart. Today, we're going to see David uh, as a worshiper. That's an element of his identity that's very important. There's 150 psalms. In the book of Psalms, David's credited with writing 73 of those. Half of them he wrote. Worship is a key part of who he is. And it shows, uh, it's one of the primary contrasts between he and Saul. Saul's issue was not that he wasn't a good military leader. It wasn't that he wasn't a good organizer of people. His issue is he had no relationship with the Lord. He didn't trust God. No personal connection. And we see from early on, David has that. He does trust the Lord. He does have personal connection. You read the Psalms and you can see the depth of relationship and the honesty and the authenticity of that relationship with the Lord. So that's what we're going to look at today. David as a worshiper. Uh, Chapter 16, verse 14. Just a few verses today. Now, the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendant said to him, see, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have a son of Jesse. Excuse me. I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is fine and is a fine looking man. And the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son, David, to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. So key dynamic. The Holy Spirit has been has withdrawn from Saul and the Holy Spirit now rests on David. When we close last week, chapter 16, verse 13, we see the Holy Spirit comes on David powerfully is what the NIV says. And here we see the Holy Spirit has departed from Saul. That's the key dynamic through the rest of first Samuel. Saul dies at the end. Spoiler. He dies at the end of first Samuel. But for the next 14 chapters, we're going to see that dynamic play out. David increases in influence and Saul decreases in influence. And it's all tied to the fact that Saul no longer um, is living in the power of the Holy Spirit. We said anointing signifies two things, being consecrated or set apart for a particular job and then being empowered to do that job. Saul has the title. He no longer has the power. His name tag says king, but he's no longer empowered by God to lead the nation. 
David doesn't have the title yet. He doesn't have the name tag. But he is empowered by God to lead. And in the, ne- in the ensuing chapters, we'll see David leading without any official role. If you have to choose between the position and the power, you take the power. And you see that with David. He doesn't have an official title. He's not recognized publicly as king. And yet he is influencing and leading the nation. And we'll see that again playing out over the next several weeks. That key dynamic we see there at the beginning. An evil spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. We're going to put a pin in that and come back. It's a, that's a big a piece of this section, but it's going to take a little while to unpack that. So we'll move on. So Saul is being tormented. That word actually is terrified. He's being terrified. There's this dread that comes upon him when this evil spirit attacks him, we'll say. And his, his attendants say, you know what you need is you need somebody who worships. That's what you need. You need to bring in someone who will worship when this spirit comes upon you and you'll feel better. And then Saul says, okay, is there anybody like that? And someone says, I've seen a guy in Bethlehem, son of Jesse. His name's David. He plays the liar really well. He's brave. He's a warrior. He speaks well. He's good looking. The Lord is with him. I don't know how the guy knows any of that. None of it. It's like he's the president of David's fan club is sitting there in the room. This guy, get him. We, we were introduced to David last week in the last chapter. We don't know anything except he's a 15-year-old shepherd boy. And we did know, they did say he was good looking. So we know that. We don't know anything else. If it was 2017, we would think maybe David posts a lot about himself and somebody's following him. They don't have any of that then. I have no idea how this guy knows that David is brave. He's 15. How does he know he's a mighty warrior? How does he know he can play the liar well? Is he covering somebody at the bar? I don't know what he's doing. But somehow this guy knows some things about David. And what that says to me is David has skills. He has qualifications. And when God chose him, he didn't care about any of it. When David is introduced to us for the first time, when God chose him, all we know is he's a man after his own heart. What does God say to Samuel? We talked about it last week. People look at appearances. I don't. I look at the heart. David has all of these things that qualify him in some sense to be the king. At a minimum, he speaks well and he's brave and he's a mighty warrior. He has some things that would that would uh, commend him for this role of leadership. And we don't see any of that when David is introduced to us because God doesn't care. What God is looking at primarily is heart. That's what we talked about last week. And you see that play out here. David does have skills, but it's secondary to his character. It's secondary to the fact that he is someone who trusts the Lord. So Saul says, great, bring him. So they go to Jesse and say, we want your son. If you remember uh, in chapter 14, I think it's in verse 52, we read that Saul, anytime he saw a mightier brave man, he brought him into his, he brought him in, put him on the team. When Samuel talks about a king, I think it's back in chapter eight, he says, this is what the king's going to do. He's going to take your kids. He's going to take your sons and he's going to bring them in and use them for in ways that benefit him. And that's what we see here. So Saul goes to David, goes to Jesse and says, I want David to come. And of course, Jesse says, yes, what else is he going to say? And he puts uh, a bunch of food on a donkey, sends it to Saul as a gift. Saul instantly likes David. I want you to stay. Makes him an armor bearer, which is a a position where where David would be around Saul, uh, be close to him. So when this spirit comes upon Saul, David takes out the liar and begins to worship. And Saul finds peace 
and rest. David doesn't seem to live with Saul. It seems like there's a bit of back and forth with Jesse still, but he's on the team and he's a a valuable member of that. So David introduced to us as a worshiper. We'll come back to that. The big piece for us in this section is this idea of an evil spirit from God tormenting Saul. Four times in ten verses, we see that phrase or something equivalent to it, which that's a high concentration. Four times in ten verses, an evil spirit from the Lord, an evil spirit from God. There's actually two more times, one in 18.10 and one in 19.9, where we see that same phrase again. The author seems to want to make a point. There is an evil spirit from the Lord terrifying Saul. So what does that mean? When you think about God, you think about this good father that we just sang about, and then you think about an evil spirit from him tormenting someone. How do you put those things together? And again, I think it's a, it's a key point to understanding this passage, concentrated four times in ten verses. A few things that I don't think are going on. Free to disagree with me for sure, not publicly, but um, you can post it. So... Um, Several things that are not going on. One, I don't think there's a mental illness here. Some people say uh, Saul was schizophrenic or he's bipolar or whatever label you want to put on him. I don't think that's true. Uh, mostly just because that's not what the Bible says. Um, the, the people who wrote it may not have known about mental illness, but the God who inspired them absolutely did. And the point seems to be, again, four times in ten verses, this is an evil spirit. It's a spiritual problem, not a chemical or a physical problem. So I don't think the idea of mental illness fits. Some people say, well, God can do whatever he wants. So on some level, that's true. It's not very helpful at all. God's ways are higher than our ways. Absolutely, again, not very helpful when it comes to understanding the character of God. What does this event say about the character of God? To say God does whatever he wants doesn't necessarily help us very much. And I would actually say I'm not certain that God can do whatever he wants, depending on how you define that. God's actions are constrained by his character. We talked about that a few weeks ago. God's character and his nature are always the same, and he always acts consistent with his character and his nature. There are things you can do that God can't. You can lie. God can't. doesn't mean you're more powerful than God. It means we're, 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 we're more wicked than him. But there are things that God can't do. And so it doesn't necessarily help to say, well, God does whatever he wants because it, 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 there's that character piece. Well, how does that line up? How does a good father line up with a wicked spirit? How do those two things fit together? Some would say, well, maybe it's just a natural result. God withdrew his spirit from Saul. We live in this, this spiritual world and we can't see it, but we live in a spiritual world and they're spiritual beings. And, and when we lose or when the protection of God is withdrawn, well, then we're open to being influenced or harassed by evil spirits. Maybe that's just what happened. The Holy Spirit was withdrawn from Saul because of his disobedience. And so that opened him up to being oppressed and harassed by evil spirits. I don't think that's what's going on either because the point seems to be this is an evil spirit from the Lord. There's two things that I think are happening and it's, we don't know yet which one it it, it is. We won't know actually until the end of Saul's life which one of these things is actually going on. Is it an initial um, taste of judgment on Saul? He's been disobedient to the Lord repeatedly. And is God judging him for his disobedience? Or is this what we may see as a drastic step taken by God to try to reconcile Saul to himself? Saul has been hard-hearted. 
has expressed zero desire to connect to God personally. God has rejected him as king, but he hasn't rejected him as a son. Is this a drastic step from the Lord to try to provoke something in Saul, to get him to wake up, to get him to repent? I don't know the answer. At this point, we don't know the answer. It's either or, both and, however you want to look at it. The answer is determined by Saul and his response to this phenomenon. However he chooses to respond to this torment will determine. Was this an initial step of salvation, of reconciliation to the Lord? Or is this an initial step of judgment and ultimate separation from God forever? And we don't know yet at this point. There are a couple of times in the Old Testament where we see something similar to this. You can read about them. Judges 9 and 1 Kings 22. Judges 9 is brutal, like the whole book is brutal. There's a guy named Abimelech. He's one of Gideon's sons. Gideon had 70 sons, and Abimelech is the 71st. And he lived in a town called Shechem, and Gideon dies, and Abimelech decides, hey, I want to be the king. And he goes to these guys in Shechem who are his people, and he says, I want to be the king. What do you all think? And they say, great. And they give him 70 coins, however much that is, and he hires what the Bible called reckless scoundrels who begin to follow him. And the first thing Gideon does is he goes to the town with his 70 half-brothers and he kills everyone. Well, he kills 69 of them. He kills 69 of his 70 uh, siblings because he doesn't want there to be any competition. And Jotham, the one who escapes, says from a standing on top of a hill and he's speaking to Abimelech and these guys from Shechem. And he says, You're gonna, if you haven't done right, If you've treated Gideon's family poorly, then fire is going to come from Abimelech and consume you, Shechemites. And fire is going to come from you, Shechemites, and consume you, Abimelech. Three years later, verse 23 of chapter 9, God sent, that's the verb, God sent an evil spirit to stir up trouble between Abimelech and the Shechemites. You can read what happens, but at the end of the chapter, Abimelech is dead. All the men of Shechem are dead. The city's destroyed and the fields have been salted so they can't be, they can't grow anything. Complete destruction. God sent an evil spirit. First Kings 22 is really a weird chapter. Wicked king named Ahab. He's the king of, the, of Israel. A pretty righteous king named Jehoshaphat. He's the king of Judah. They get together and Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, hey, let's fight the Arameans. They have a city that's ours. And Jehoshaphat says, Let's ask the Lord. And Ahab says, okay. And he pulls together these 400 prophets. They're not prophets of God. And they say, go do whatever you want. And Jehoshaphat recognizes these aren't prophets of God. He says, there's no prophet of the Lord here in the northern kingdom. Bring me somebody. And Ahab says, well, there's this one guy, but he never says anything nice about me. So I don't want to bring him. And Jehoshaphat says, get him. And his name, I don't know how to say it, is M-I-C-A-I. A-H. We'll call him Mike. And so they bring Mike in. And Ahab says, what do you think about this? And Mike says, go attack him. And he can see the sarcasm or hear the sarcasm in Mike's voice. He says, tell me the truth. And this guy, Mike, says, well, this is what I saw. Israel, like a sheep without a shepherd, meaning you're going to die if you go and fight this battle. And Ahab says, see, Jehoshaphat, he never says anything nice about me. And this guy, Mike, says, I saw a scene. It's wild. It's like he got a glimpse into heaven. And it's almost, it looks almost like a boardroom picture 
God's at the head of the table and he's taking suggestions. It's like a brainstorming session. Who's going to entice Abraham or Ahab to his death? Who's going to do that? And there are all these ideas from all of these spirits. And one of them says, I've got a great idea. I'll tell the prophets to lie. And God says, how are you going to do that? I'll be a lying spirit in their mouth. And you can see they're up on the screen. God put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of these 400 prophets. And that's what Mike tells Ahab. That's what happened. And Ahab, being Ahab, doesn't, he doesn't heed the warning. He goes ahead and fights this battle and he winds up dying in it. Two very interesting chapters where we have God using things that to us don't feel very godlike. Sending an evil spirit, sending a lying spirit against his own people. What's going on there? Both of those cases, there was opportunity for repentance. Abimelech had three years. The Shechemites had three years. They didn't repent. So then they were judged for their treachery. Ahab, now you think about this. You got 400 guys who only tell you what you want to hear. That's their track record. You got one guy who always tells you the truth, and he hears from the Lord. You don't want to hear what he's got to say, but you know he's always telling the truth. So this guy comes to you and he says, if you fight that fight, you're going to die. What do you do? Do you fight the fight? Oh, Ahab, in his brilliance, this is what he does. You know what? I'm going to fight, but I'm going to take off my royal clothes and wear regular people clothes. Like somehow God's not going to know. Where's Ahab? He's not wearing the crown. I can't. What is that? And he goes to fight, and it says a a soldier randomly, that's the word, randomly shot an arrow, hits Ahab in the back, and he dies. That didn't make any sense. He had an opportunity to respond, to change his course, to repent, and he doesn't. He plows ahead, and so he dies. For both Abimelech and for Ahab, what could have been a step towards reconciliation with God instead becomes judgment. For them, And it's all in their response. If they would have submitted, if they would have recognized, you know what, I sinned. I shouldn't have killed the 70 guys. That was a sin. I was power hungry and bloodthirsty. God, I repent. There's a hope for them. If Ahab said, I'm going, I'm, it's my own ego. I want to take back this city that, that should be mine. That's not mine. If he would have said that, if he would have repented of his wickedness, it could have been a step towards reconciliation with the Lord. But both of those guys resisted the work of God, the unusual work of God. Evil spirit, lying spirit, both of them resisted that. And so what could have led to their salvation led to their destruction. And that's where we are with Saul. He's he's in the balance. We don't know how he's going to respond. You can read ahead. He doesn't respond well. We don't know, but at this point, we don't know. Is this judgment? Is this salvation? We do know this about the Lord. He doesn't delight in anyone dying. Not Saul, not Ahab, not Abimelech. Very clearly, he says, both Old Testament and New Testament, I don't take delight in people perishing. My desire is for people to repent, to ask for forgiveness, and to be reconciled to me. You can see the scriptures there up on the screen. 
everything that we see about the character of God as revealed in Jesus says he pursues relationship. He seeks reconciliation until we take our last breath. I don't get the mechanics of from the Lord. It's a mystery to me. But the why is not that mysterious to me. God is trying to provoke a response from Saul, from a, from a guy who has been resistant and rebellious, from a guy who's been disobedient from day one, a guy who's never expressed any desire to connect with God personally. God is trying to provoke a response, and he's using extreme measures, drastic measures to do that. Saul never turned to the Lord when he led. He never once said, you know what, this is too big for me. I need some guidance or some direction. We never see him saying, God, we're going into battle. Will you protect us? We don't, not even that. God, will you be with us? We never see that from him. We see him build a monument in his own honor. We see him taking, putting his people, his, his soldiers under a vow to say, avenge me against these enemies. As they're fighting, they're engaged in battle. And he says, you don't get to eat until you avenge me. That's what we see from Saul. God is going to extreme measures to try to provoke some kind of response. Again, he's rejected as king. He's never going to be the king. His son Jonathan is never going to be the king. That's off the table. But there's still opportunity for him to live as a son. And that's what's in the balance. Again, unfortunately, he doesn't respond well. And so this becomes the first step in Saul's judgment. But it didn't have to be that way. It didn't have to. So what does this mean from the Lord? Wildly speculative. I don't know. But this is my guess. Occasionally, God directs evil spirits to do evil things in order to accomplish good purposes. It's very rare. But he does do that at times. You can read Job chapter 1 and 2. You can see some of it. God holds Job up. Hey, Satan, have you thought about Job? Maybe, hopefully he never does that to you. Have you ever thought about Job? It's like he's goading Satan into wreaking havoc in Job's life. What Satan does is steal, kill, and destroy. That's his job description. That's who he is. God doesn't have to direct him to do that. But it's almost like he's, he's priming the pump. Go after Job. Waving the red towel thing that you do for a bull. And, and Satan goes for it. And the result is Job is vindicated and God is vindicated. And the way God works in the world is vindicated. That's the result. Directing or goading or however you want to see that, I don't the right verb. An evil spirit to do evil things, which is what they do, to accomplish good purposes. That's what you see there. I think that might be what's going on here. Again, it's, it's a mystery to me. I don't understand it fully. But that's what I think from the Lord means. God, in some way, directing this evil spirit. They torment. That's what they do. They're evil. Directing this evil spirit to torment Saul, not because he's petty, not because he's vindictive, not because he's cruel, but because he's trying to provoke a response in Saul. And this evil spirit maybe is the means to that end. So what does that mean for us? Step back. You're experiencing pain at some point in your life right now. Relationship, circumstance. You're experiencing difficulty. Maybe you're trying to figure out where, where's the source. You're probably not going to be able to figure it out. Rarely is the curtain pulled back for us. 
We reap what we sow. It could be the consequences of choices you've made. We live in a fallen world. It could be just the result of living in sinful creation. We do have an enemy who steals and kills and destroys. It could be demonic oppression. It could be God disciplining you. He disciplines those that he loves. I don't know. Ultimately, I don't know that it matters. What matters is I'm experiencing this. God, what is that provoking in me? What's it bringing out of me? Self-pity. Woe is me. My life is so hard. Bitterness. God, what are you doing? Despair. It's never going to get better. Anger. What's it bringing out of you? Are you willing to ask the Lord, God, how would you use this? You're already going through the pain. You might as well get something out of it. God, how would you use this? I don't know, I don't know the source. Ultimately, you're probably never going to know the source. But can you ask the Lord, how would you use this to make me more like Jesus? How would you use this to cause me to trust you on a deeper level? If you've never said yes to Jesus, maybe it's an extreme, a drastic measure. God trying to provoke a response in you. Maybe your whole world has to crash in order for you to realize you need a savior. And what can what could be. The first step of judgment can also be the first step of salvation. If in the moment you'll recognize I can't do this. I need help. If you'll step towards instead of away from the Lord. Those of you who've already said yes to Jesus. How would he use that pain in your own life to form and shape your character to make you look more like him? How would he use that pain in your own life to cause you to trust him at a deeper level? There may be a place where you need to repent. Even as a believer, there may be a place where you've begun to go your own way. God's allowing you to experience and maybe even causing you to experience some pain because he's trying to get you to wake up and to repent before your heart becomes hard. What does that difficulty provoke in you? Would you allow it to provoke repentance and trust and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control? One other thing really different. And then we'll close. David, amazing to me. He worships. The room literally changes. Literally, the atmosphere of the room is different because David worships. This evil spirit leaves Saul and he finds peace and rest. The hope is that Saul recognizes that. And he does the math and he realizes, when I'm in the presence of God, I find peace and rest. And so, Maybe I need to figure out how to dwell in the presence of God. Again, that's not what happens. It's what we hope would happen for Saul. But for us, when we look at David, we talk about the difference between being a thermometer and a thermostat. Thermometers reflect temperature. Thermostats set them. David's a thermostat. He changes the spiritual atmosphere in the room. Saul, who has no connection to the Lord, benefits from David's worship. What does that mean for you if you're someone who's Following Jesus. What does that mean for you as someone who worships? When I say worship in this context, I'm speaking specifically about music and singing. There are other expressions of worship. We're talking specifically about singing. That's what David does. He plays music and he sings. Over 50 times in the Bible, we're commanded to sing. So what does it look like for you to be someone 
If you're following Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives within you. You can change the atmosphere of the places where you go simply by worshiping, by making a choice in that space to sing, to engage with the Lord. I don't understand it. It's just it's reality. You see it right there in 1 Samuel 16. Your kids are having nightmares. What would it look like for you to worship in their room? You don't like the dynamics of your staff. They're nasty. What would it look like for you to worship in that room before the staff meeting? Your school is a dark place. What would it look like for you at FCA to engage in worship, recognizing that changes the atmosphere of your school when you do that? Again, it's not, it's not a math problem. Your worship extends. It causes some holy halo to go out three feet or four feet or five feet. I, I wish it was. It's not, but there's reality there. Well, I'm not really that kind of a person. Maybe become that kind of a person. I'm not that emotional. Let's think about that. Maybe it's a growth area for us. For many of us, our tendency in worship is to pull back and be very reserved. And there's a time and a space for that for sure. There's also time and a space to engage with the Lord significantly. To recognize that when you choose to engage Him in singing, you are literally changing the atmosphere. Some of you are you're upset about things that you see on the news or in the, what your kids are bringing home from school or what you're experiencing at work or in your neighborhood. And worship may seem indulgent. How does that do anything? It changes the atmosphere of a place. It's a recognition that we live in not just in a physical world, but in a spiritual world. And when we worship, we change the spiritual atmosphere and the physical world can follow that. Not always, but there's opportunity there. What would it look like for you to begin to engage the Lord? Does it mean you have to bring out your guitar at your staff meeting? No, no, it doesn't. What if you went before? What if you stayed after? What about in your own home? Again, if there are places you think about our city that are dark and broken, what would it look like? You just go sit. Sit on a bench. Sit under a tree. Bring your music. Listen. Engage the Lord with your heart in worship in those places and see what he begins to do. None of you sing worse than me. Not one of you. I'm tone deaf. I sing so bad, I think I sing good. It's true. I didn't know I was tone deaf until I went on a mission trip. I was in high school, and we were sitting on a porch, and this guy was playing a guitar, and we were singing. And this guy, he said, man, you sure do sing loud for someone who can't carry a tune. And I was like, I didn't know. I was like, I thought I sounded pretty good. It's not about that. doesn't matter how good you sing. Engaging with the Lord, your heart. There's something about music that does it. It stirs our heart in a way that just words don't. And you know that's true. Music, it moves us at a deeper level than just intellectually. Our emotions are are not a result of the fall. They're part of what it means to be created in God's image. He feels as well. He grieves. He gets angry. You can read all those things in Scripture. He takes delight. Emotions in and of themselves are not negative. Don't be afraid of that. Worship helps to engage your mind and your emotions. Your heart. In your head. Let's take a minute and be quiet before him.
We'll make sure we have time to respond. Bo's going to come up and he's going to sing. I don't want you to sing. I want you to sit in your chair. I'm going to give you two very different things to think about. I don't want to ask, are you Saul or David? That's not the right question. But when you think about today, where you are, do you relate more? There's torment in your life. There are places of pain. If there are, would you, in the next couple of minutes, be willing to say, God, how do you want to use this? Absolutely, we'll pray for the circumstances to change. But until they do, God, how do you want to use this to make me more like Jesus? How do you want to use this to lead me to a deeper place of trust in you? If you've never said yes to Jesus, maybe the question is, God, what would it look like for in the midst of the shambles of my life? For me to begin to cry out for mercy and grace. Could you ask him those questions in your own heart the next couple of minutes? When you look at the pain and what it's provoking in you, is it provoking steps towards the Lord or steps away from him? Way over here on the other side. Would you say, no, I'm good right now? feel at peace and rest in my life? Are there places where you live and move that are broken, that are dark, where the enemy seems to have sway? Would you ask the Lord, what does it look like for me to be a David in those places? What does it look like for me to worship in those places? got to be led by him. I have no idea what that might look like for you, but are you willing to ask the question? God, I want to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. I recognize that someone who's following you as someone who's been filled with the Spirit. When I engage with you in worship, something changes atmospherically. I don't understand it, but I know it's true. Show me what that looks like in my home or my office, in my school or in our city. Take a couple of minutes and think about that. Ask the Lord and I'll come back up and lead us into the next thing.